The straw that's stirring this drink are the Tea Party nihilists who just want the government to shut down. And, you know, one of the things about being Speaker is you've got a lead. I don't see Speaker Boehner doing that, so I think we're going to have a government shutdown and my Republican friends are going to get what they want. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner. Unplugged. Welcome to Episode 11 of The Middle Unplugged, a break in the middle of the week when we reclaim the microphone from the far left and the far right and try to carve out some time for a less shrill and less extreme and generally less angry conversation. Happy New Year. That opening that you just heard, that cold opening that I usually don't explain when I do the show is from another far-off time when the Republicans in the House were in disarray because of their far-right saber-rattling at the fairly new speaker. In that case, it was John Boehner, and not at the Democrats. They were after the speaker, and uh, the speaker was who they were rattling their saber at. Maybe maybe you see where I'm going with this, but I'm not going to do a full wrap of the speaker drama today. I'm going to do that on the middle because I'm watching it like a sporting event. I've made some predictions about it, but you can go back and check out the show. It's great to have you along today as we get started with a new season, a new Congress. You know, as the new Congress begins, this is the 118th Congress. I think it's the 24th anniversary of my being sworn in. I was sworn in in 1999. It marked the formal demise of the January 6th committee. The Republican leadership has the ability to just end it. It was a select committee. And this is an important thing about the way leadership changes in Washington affect policy, how much survived how much goes away. You know, when presidents come in, when new presidents come in, particularly those of another party, they have the executive orders of the old administration get wiped away. Executive orders are basically management things that the president says he's going to do as the executive running the country. They die with each administration, although not necessarily. I mean, they can keep going. There are some executive orders that have been on the books for presidents, you know, going back for 40, 50 years. But if a new president wants to come in and get rid of an executive order of the old, he can do it with a stroke of a pen. Laws continue, obviously, whatever the president is. Regulations, largely of the different executive agencies, stay the way they are. But what Things that presidents choose to enforce can obviously change. He doesn't have to wipe away a law or a regulation to just choose not to enforce something. That often is the source of litigation. But when Congress comes in it's and a Congress changes, you know, for one thing, even if a Congress doesn't change, every bill has to be reintroduced. Any negotiations that were underway, any markup that had happened, it's almost as if the entire government, the slate gets wiped clean except for old laws that had been passed. And that's, by the way, was one of the forces that led to the big omnibus being passed at the tail end of last year, was that a lot of people put stuff in there that they didn't want to go back to the drawing board on, or they thought the chances of it getting passed in the new Congress were diminished, so they rushed ahead and got some stuff done. And then, obviously, committees get reformed every two years. It's tradition, and it would probably stay that way this time, that the individual parties get to will keep the members on their committees that want to stay there, and they'll have to decide who goes where. The one thing that will change is that the margins on the committees will be very slim. The chairmanships will now become Republican in the House of Representatives, but it'll be even a slimmer margin than it was before. But for the January 6th committee, any last-minute things that they had to do had to be done by basically by, you know, the December 31st. Had to be done before the new Congress came in as it did yesterday. Any documents they wanted to release, think about it. 
if the Republicans came in and there were some documents that had not yet been released, there's a very good chance that the new speaker and the new Congress would say, no, we're not going to release those. We're going to bury them or even shred them. There's really nothing prohibiting them from doing that kind of thing. Any report that needed to get printed, the January 6th committee, if they weren't able to get it out the door and printed, they wouldn't have been able to get it done in this Congress because they would have relied on this new leadership and this new Republican Congress doing it. So they had to rush and get things out. It was so bad they even had the first printing of the January 6th had the wrong date on it and a title that had was a holder title. But anyway, it all got out. That's why a thousand interview transcripts were released at the very end of the year and why they're still people are still going through all the pages of documents. There were a thousand interview requests were released. It's interesting that not every interview request was released. There were some that were not. And it's because those are people that had testified in a way that the committee deemed that they might be at harm, at risk if their names became public, that they would be doxxed, as the kids say, that their information would be revealed and that they would be under some danger. So those documents were sent both to the White House and to the National Archives to determine whether or not it's safe to release them. Now it's someone else's problem. But it's outside the new Congress's hands. Now, there were a lot of stories about, you know, what are the takeaways from the January 6th report and the final, these transcripts. Some of the transcripts we're still going through. I know that I am. You know, one of the big takeaways that a lot of people reported on is amazing how little people seem to remember stuff. There are a lot of interesting cases. Obviously, the Trump kids didn't remember anything. A lot of I don't recalls. Someone's going to go through and count up all the I don't recalls that were in there. There were some that were just legitimately funny, like there was a, a West Wing staffer, this guy named Austin Ferrer Peron Basolito. He didn't even remember where he was that day. And this guy's a fairly junior staffer. You know, here's the transcript. Do you remember being at the White House that afternoon, even if you don't remember where exactly you were in the White House? And he asked, he answered, no, I do not. And then the follow-up was, do you remember whether you're at home or at the White House on the afternoon of January 6th? Again, that day is very blurry. So it is clear that some people went in just with the agenda. I mean, had junior staffer on January 6th. I remember where I was. I wasn't working on Capitol Hill. Most people probably do. And then there were some, some equally unbelievable cases. There was an obscure election official in Wayne County, Michigan, who was called by the president of the United States. I guarantee that doesn't happen to her every day. And believe it or not, she couldn't remember why he called. She couldn't remember what he said. <laughs> so, so the one thing is there are a lot of people saying that they didn't remember stuff. And the committee in its you know, look, you can do an investigation. The prosecutor, now there's a special prosecutor, this guy Jack Smith, who's now going to look at all this stuff. In most cases, it didn't really impact on learning very much about what really happened. In a way, it was just humorous because it was clear they were trying to protect the president. A second takeaway that I found interesting, and maybe this is not as interesting to you, but I found interesting, you know, there is this kind of narrative that had emerged through some of the testimony that people were bringing stuff to President Trump. And he was like, you know, just bring me anyone and I'll, you know, yeah, go ahead and you're going to try that. You're going to try this. OK, great. Go ahead and do that. But it's become clear now, if you read all of this stuff, that Trump was involved and planning and actively involved with all of this stuff going way back. This was not in any way ad hoc. For example, they found out that on multiple occasions, Donald Trump directly had reached out to the Republican National Committee chair, Rona McDaniel, and asked her specific questions about this fake electors thing, just making sure she was all ready. That had to be done 
way before January 6th. And he was he was in there and also said that, you know, Trump had a 23 minute call with this John Eastman on the same day that Eastman prepared this memo laying out this idea. Like it's not this idea that Trump may argue, oh, I was just hearing ideas and telling people to go pursue them. That it seems like the committee went to a great deal of effort to debunk that. For example, Trump, they write, personally contacted RNC Chairwoman Romney McDaniel days before December 14th to enlist the RNC's assistance in the scheme, the fake elector scheme. And for, you know, if you haven't been following this closely, basically this idea, Pence refuses to accept one set of the correctly chosen electors. He says no. And then the second part of that, well, we're going to have chaos here unless we have another set of electors. And so they have these fake electors from these states that say that President Trump actually won. So that's another takeaway was the idea that Trump was kind of in on on the planning. A third thing that the committee clearly focused on, and this is the Liz Cheney influence, I'm going to argue, is they were very into this idea of Trump being banned from office. Like the panel really did zero in on the section of the Constitution that talks about you know, an individual has taken an oath. Like the, the Constitution says this, an individual can't run for office who has taken an oath to support the Constitution but has, quote, engaged in insurrection or, quote, given aid or comfort to the enemies of the Constitution can be disqualified from office. So that constitutional prescription was clearly what they were focused on. I know there was a lot of talk about the referrals to the Justice Department, but that was the big, the big focus. Some of the smaller little bits of the thing that turned out to be interesting— you may remember the famous SUV story. That was this idea that the president gets into the SUV that day and f- tries to physically force his driver, even reaching forward and having physical contact with him, to force the steering wheel to take him back. They, remember, that was such a hot thing that they had an emergency hearing. This woman, Casey Hutcherson, testified to that. Well, it's not really corroborated in the report, but it's also not really debunked. Like, the driver did say that Trump was animated and irritated. That's a quote. And Trump did say, I'm the president and I'll decide where to go. But the driver doesn't go far to say much more than that. And the other guy, the head of the Secret Service, this guy, Ornato, he comes across as a complete fraud and a liar. And the committee basically says, the committee says we don't really believe this guy's testimony. But the driver, Robert Engel, told the panel he didn't remember it exactly the way Hutchinson described it. It's going to go into the category of if you basically believe the overarching thing that Donald Trump was forcibly trying to get his SUV driver to go back to go to the Capitol, it's supported in lots of other ways. So I don't think that's but it's an interesting takeaway that they I was kind of waiting for the final report to see if they got to the bottom because remember there were all these unnamed sources right after Casey Hutchins saying that she's full of baloney. And so I wanted to see what wound up happening. None of those unnamed sources seem to have shown up and given testimony under oath. Another kind of interesting thing here, it's not in the report, but it is kind of the unspoken part of the report. Actually, that's not true. There is conversation in the report about some Trump staffers saying we're dead man walking after this all thing goes down, like they're texting back and forth with one another. Because they said our careers are dead that we're ever involved with this lunatic and this administration. But there are also a bunch of kind of no-name lawyers who are participating in this constitutional, this this subversion of the Constitution that you got to figure will never work again. 
you know, there's a Trump lawyer called Kenneth Cheeseborough who, like, is right in there, like, writing reports and advocating for this stuff. And, you know, we know the problem that other lawyers have had being dragged before disbarment, hearing things. If you're a lawyer and you're in the administration and you weren't one of the people that kind of stood up and said, I'm out of here when all this stuff was going on, you got to figure now your name is going to show up in Google searches as a lawyer who is involved with subverting the Constitution. I mean, who would want you as their lawyer, except maybe a future Trump administration? Another interesting little takeaway, you know, I was on Capitol Hill during the Iran-Contra hearings, and one of the big smoking gun documents was Oliver North, who was involved in that scandal. And if you remember, it was trading hostages from Iran to get in exchange for money going to the Contras in Nicaragua. It was a crazy thing that was going on. It was a big scandal. Now it seems downright quaint. Anyway, the big smoking gun document was this notebooks that Oliver North kept. He was this figure in that scandal, and he wrote down everything he did every day. It was funny. I was inspired by that when I was working on Capitol Hill to kind of keep those kinds of journals. Now I realize it's a bad idea. But anyway, the amazing thing or one of the interesting takeaways for me from this was you look at all of the different documents that they had access to that I bet you not a lot of thought went into. You know, Mark Meadows texts. For example, you had Eastman's email train that was extensive about what every little bit of this. It doesn't show to be any sign. You know, Donald Trump famously doesn't do email. Jared Kushner provided emails, signal messages by a key Trump figure involved in the fake elector. You know, signal advertises all over the place, and a lot of people use it because they can't. They think that it can't be hacked or the documents are residing. Well, they got these. I don't know anything about the technology behind it, but that was surprising to me. You know, phone records and, you know, a lot of stuff about this was at the National Archives. The National Archives, the committee just had to walk a few blocks away and just say, hey, give us all these documents. All of these things about emails and everything else had been turned over as part of the transition in government. So I found that to be very interesting. Another thing that was buried in in the committee, in the report, in the final report that had not come out before, was something that I didn't even think about and I probably should have. And it comes in the form of text and telephone calls going from Senator John Warner. I'm sorry, Mark Warner. John Warner's the other guy. A phone call that went out to the FBI director, the then FBI director, David Brudwich, basically saying that 87 senators were all being held in the same undisclosed location. They were sheltering in place in a single room. The entire United States, no, 87 of them, so almost the entire United States senator. And Warner looks around, and he made a call and says, this is a mess. We have the vast majority of the Senate in one room. It just goes to show you how fragile this all was. I don't know where that room is. I've never been whisked into a room for safety because I've never that was never that important. <laughs> but the fact that 87 of them were in one room, imagine if that room was breached. Another interesting note, the SWAT team was deployed to Mitch McConnell's office because they were about to be broken into and the SWAT team arrived there long after the uh, Senator McConnell had left. So one thing that wasn't in there is virtually no mention of Ginny Thomas. Ginny Thomas, the spouse of Clarence Thomas, 
She had sent a whole bunch of texts to Mark Meadows, some of the craziest out there conspiracy stuff she was forwarding along. Interesting to see that when she was asked publicly about the texts, she doesn't say, I apologize for the text. She said, I'm sorry they became public, basically. I think this is the Liz Cheney influence on the committee. You know, Liz Cheney, Republican of Wyoming, lost her seat as a result of her cooperation. I think everyone who's listening to this now knows who Liz Cheney is. But it's also been widely reported that Liz Cheney, in many ways, held the final pen on the report because she was such an important part of the committee, both in how active she was, but also the fact that she was a prominent Republican speaking out against the administration. I think this might be have the handprints of the fact that Ginny Thomas wasn't mentioned more. A Supreme Court justice has a spouse who is advocating publicly, privately, in every which way, who's taking money as a lobbyist of an activist from organizations that wanted to overturn the results of the election. And that conflict, that inherent conflict in our Constitution, doesn't even get a mention in the committee, is problematic to me. So those are some of the takeaways, some of the major ones, some of the minor ones, the takeaways from the committee report. I have to say of all of the fears that many people had that this would be another, like the Mueller report or something else that has amazing things in it, but that it kind of falls with a thud rather than an explosion because it gets trampled on by the other party because the media doesn't understand it because of whatever. All those fears were not founded. This committee did a great job. They treated it like a TV event, which it largely was. They figured out narratives to make us understand it. They got the interviews. They made them public in a way that was not perfect but was pretty darn good. And now history is there to be the judge. So that's the January 6th. When we come back, we're going to have a rather interesting version of, or I think an interesting version of Listener Mail. You're listening to The Middle Unplugged. We'll see you after the break. Welcome back to The Middle Unplugged. Each week on The Middle Unplugged, we try to get some feedback and we respond to it, try to read some listener mail or someone that's reached out to me. I can be reached on on Twitter, at Rep Wiener, R-E-P-W-E-I-N-E-R. The email address is wiener, W-A-B-C, at gmail.com. Or you can check out the Facebook page. I think it's Anthony D. Wiener. Or there are some podcasting apps that let you leave comments. I'll try to read those as well. And I get a lot of calls on the radio. Also, I've gotten now four different emails about a subject that also has been raised by, believe it or not, a United States senator. But to call what happened on January 6th an armed insurrection, I just think is not accurate. So that's Ron Johnson. And he goes on to explain, oh, it wasn't an armed insurrection. And I get a lot of calls because I just had one when I filled in for Bo Snurdly last week. You know, why are you calling it armed that no one got shot, basically? And the only person that got shot was a protester. Well, there's a lot of that in the January 6th committee report as well, and a lot of it that has become public. First of all, that was Ron Johnson, a United States senator from Wisconsin who really should know better, who, believe it or not, got reelected. But saying it wasn't an insurrection, I've argued that if there were, there would have been more weapons. But that conceit ignored a lot of the people weren't arrested. People were not, rioters were not really arrested that day. They went, you know, that was not what happened. So we don't know really how many people were armed. But there was, and there was also testimony to the January 6th committee and evidence, photographic evidence, that people were not going through the magnometers, the magnetometers, that would have detected weapons. They were waiting just outside. And frankly, it was 
Donald Trump, who raised in conversations, according to testimony, my people won't come through magnometers, I want them taken down. But even with that, there were 28,000 spectators who did pass through. you got to assume the guys with the guns left, a lot of backpacks that were left elsewhere. But 242 canisters of pepper spray were seized. 269 knives were seized. 18 brass knuckles received. 18 tasers received. Six pieces of body armor received. This is just from the committee report. 30 batons or blunt instruments, and then 17 miscellaneous items like scissors or screwdrivers and stuff like that. And let's remember something else, that a lot of the things that they found around were used as weapons. The bicycle racks that were used to, to hold the people back were used as weapons, we saw in the video. Flags were used as um as weapons. And there were also six cases in which people were observed carrying guns or what looked like guns near the Capitol before Trump's speech began. And another element of this that we we also know, we also know that there has there has now been uh, a trial where it was testified to and uh, convictions were brought down and pleas of guilty to stashing weapons outside of the jurisdiction of Washington in hotel rooms on the Virginia side so that when the ghost signal was given by either the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boards, the different organizations that were organizing this insurrection, that they would be ready. And there were thousands of hundreds of them there. And that is a matter of the record as well. So this idea that this wasn't an armed insurrection is just not right. We don't know fully to this day, but the information that we have shows that there are a lot of weapons involved. Like I said, I do want to hear these questions. I do want to have an opportunity to respond. This has been a kind of a January 6th committee wrap-up here. The evidence is still out there, as they would say on the X-Files, but at least we should, hopefully the you know, United States senator wouldn't be adding to these conspiracy theories. So that's the end of our first podcast of the year. Be sure to download this podcast. If you think it's a good one, go ahead and share it with folks. That's the best way that people get to know about it. Also, be sure to tune in to The Middle, my show at 2 o'clock on Saturday, and then at 3 o'clock, The Left versus Right. Both of those are in different podcast feeds. Also, this past week, I filled in for Bo Snurdly on the Bo Snurdly Rush Hour. If you want to hear how that went as a fairly moderate but still Democrat sat in for one of the most conservative voices on radio, you can go back and download the last few weeks of or the last week or so of the Bo Snurdly Rush Hour. That's also, All of it is available on the Red Apple Podcast Network. That's where you can find me. I'm really grateful. Hope you have an amazing 2023, and I'll see you next week. And this marks the end of The Middle Unplugged. <laughs>